Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents. But this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Excellent. The big idea um, that seems to underpin uh, this section as you move into the final bit of the letter is that we are we're a new family, or better than that, we are a new household. That is, church isn't a, a club or a hobby or something we just do on a Sunday. But actually it's to affect the root of how we treat each other, the way we relate to each other, how we see ourselves. And actually if you've been here week by week, you remember um, from Dave and Matt and others, and this idea of household has already been front and centre. Important verses for the letter back in um, 3 verse 14 and 15 if you remember. Um, Paul writes to them, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so I take it here we have, at the end of the letter, more of what it means for the household of God to conduct ourselves. And yet it's very nitty-gritty, it's very practical. It's, it's almost outside the, the church gathering and into people's houses, into family life. And I think verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5 sort of underpin if you like, the rest of the section that Paul's going to go on and talk about. They are the umbrella verses that set the agenda for the, the next um, chunk, at least, up to verse 16. Um, so that they are, do you remember, do you, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So you see this idea of family, of household, coming to um, the front and centre there. It's worth noting, before Jesus... 
before the incarnation, essentially God's family was a racial unit, a, a group of people, by and large, from the same bloodline. That is what defined them. That is what united them. And yet Jesus comes, and God's people are redefined. It's no longer about a blood or family line, but it's just those who trust and follow him, who, who believe and accept Jesus, who trust what he's done for them on the cross. And you see, as he, as he dies for his people, so a new family is brought, a new household is brought together. Which I think must be then the context for how we read the rest of these verses. In one sense, we're listening into one side of the conversation. We don't quite know what's going on in Ephesus. We don't quite know whether Paul was writing to specific instances um, as he was instructing Timothy. Probably so. But we do know they need to hear this. How does he talk to them? Well, four different groups of people for Timothy to have in mind. Four different sections of the community, of the church family, of the household. I think the uniting factor for all four of them is that he is to deal lovingly. That's pretty obvious in one sense. But he is to treat them well. Older men, younger men, older women and younger women. Older men first, and it's not as if you shouldn't rebuke an older man. It's not that we should never rebuke older men. Not that we should turn a blind eye or let them continue in their sin. No, no, the important word is harshly. I think that in itself can be a challenge because sometimes we think, well, if there are older folk in the congregation, we think, well, maybe we just need to back off and leave them. But actually it's striking even here that Paul will be instructing, or is instructing Timothy to, to rebuke them but not to do it harshly. You get similar ideas in Galatians actually where Paul outlines to the church how to effectively deal with a brother who's caught in sin. And the key word there that Paul uses is gently. So not open and harsh rebuke. But rather it's a question of mending and repairing. I'm, I'm told that the word used um, there is, is the idea of restoring. And it's also used of, of nets being restored. I mean, the Gospels, fishermen mending their nets. If you get your, I'm not a fisherman at all, but if you get your lines tangled up, if you get your nets, the worst thing to do is to pull them apart savagely and harshly. So what Paul is encouraging Timothy is to, to fix the situation gently to sort the problem, gentle interaction, tactful, kindness, sensitivity, lovingness, not being harsh, <coughs> treating them with respect as if they were fathers, and indeed treating older women as if mothers as well. Get that in verse 2. I wonder if there's a, a disconnect with, with them and us though, because in, in our modern culture, very often, parents or, or older generations aren't particularly respected. Actually, age is not something that we particularly respect anymore in our culture. And yet it's striking, isn't it, that as Christians we are to honour our parents, to honour the older generation. It's loving the toffs who are our sort of crowning glory in one sense at Magdalen Road. And even though some can't be with us, it's actually recognising and remembering them and caring for them and praying for them and visiting them when we can. So that's the older generation. Then the younger as well. Younger men and younger women. And again, he uses the, the idea of family. Treating younger men as brothers. 
and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Which is striking again in a culture that is not particularly pure. We have to live lives as pure people in an impure civilization, an impure society that we are living amongst. Increasingly where sex is seen as something that's a game or something to be laughed at or that everyone should be doing. For Christians it's different. We are to treat people as if they were family. Someone that you would want the best for, that you would encourage, that you would value, that you would draw out the potential in. No room for inappropriate comments. Lewd, crude, but actually absolute purity. As you would treat someone in your family. These family relationships then are to go on and and shape how we relate as a church family as well. To begin to see the people sat around us on a Sunday, the people in our home groups, the people on our, on our website list, the people we pray for, to see them as family rather than just individuals. And so you get 3 to 16, this, this topic of widows, which is very striking. Again, we don't quite know why Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus about this. Maybe it was a big area of conflict or concern. Again, if you know your Bibles, you'll know, remember in Acts chapter 6, that was one of the particular points of tension at the beginning for church life. God has a, God has a particular concern for orphans and for widows. Why? Well, because he particularly cares for the vulnerable. He particularly cares for the helpless. Um, think, for example, of um, the, the law. Think of Leviticus. Um, think of, do you remember the idea of gleaning, where God tells his people to leave the edges of the harvest, such that those who don't have may find food. You get it worked out in Ruth. Um, let me read Leviticus 19 for us. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And so if God has a heart and a concern for the outcast, then his people are too as well. That's not just something for for the Old Testament, but we see it being brought through into the New. Again, let's say you get Ruth um, providing for Naomi, providing for herself, because of the law and because of Boaz as well. And the thing about widows, in a, in a largely patriarchal society, if you were a widow, you probably would have dependents and you would struggle without a husband. They would have been the breadwinner. And they would have been the ones who provided financially. And so God cares about those people who can't provide for themselves. There's no welfare state. And so the life of the church really mattered. And so you've got Act 6, as we mentioned. Division in the Jerusalem church. It felt some of the widows were being neglected not looked after, and so they appoint for the first time, it seems, these people named deacons. People particularly set aside that the outcasts, that those who can't provide for themselves are provided for by the church. And in fact, Luke can write elsewhere in Acts that there were no needy persons found among them. That is family. Imagine being part of a church like that. That is relationships in action. And so what does Paul tell them? What does Paul tell Timothy in Ephesus then? Um, I find this surprising because he spends quite a bit of time classifying the widows 
and indeed telling Timothy that it is not your responsibility to look after them all, but rather to focus on those who really need it. Um, Which, when we think about it, sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? He says, don't help them or them or them or them, but do help these ones. Who shouldn't they help? Um, Firstly, verse 4 and verse 8, widows who already have family. Paul says to the family, come on guys, put your faith into action. Put your religion into practice. He's not quite so down on the word religion as we often are. Put your religion into practice. In fact, he almost says to the parents, um, he says, your parents or your grandparents, they have put so much time into you, into caring for you and looking after you, then it's almost fair that you should look after them when they need it. And I wonder if that's got implications for us as a culture. I was reflecting on it this week, and I think it's fair to say that that verse there, and verse 4, I think that is largely from a human perspective why we as a family are back in Oxford. And some of you will know that I was born here in Oxford, I grew up in Oxford, but moved away at university, stayed away. Um, late 2006, my dad got ill and he died. Um, which meant from that point onwards we began to think, well, where should we be longer term? What does, what does it look like to be um, with a young family at the time? We had uh, just Ellie and Barney. Um, we were in ministry, we had planted a church, and then we had this responsibility in Oxford. And it was verses like verse 4, or indeed verse 8, that made us begin to rethink whether we ought to have um, more of a proximity to this place, and that we might look after my stepmom, who is a widow, still a widow, um, and wider family as well. We, we didn't feel we were able to do that, and verses like verse 8 we found very difficult to, to not look after your own family, your own household. And I recognise there's a slight distance there. They've denied the faith, and it's worse than an unbeliever. So we thought, well, maybe longer term, we need to consider that. It's not the case for everyone, of course. But with us, with young family, Oxford responsibilities and ministry, we were juggling too much and dropping too much. I think verse 8 did weigh heavily. So we began to explore options and here we are. Um, second group of widows that we, we are not to help, or at least that t- t- Timothy is urged not to prioritise, are those who are not believers, it seems. I think that's what's going on in verse 6. The widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. It's a strange phrase, but I wonder if she is living for hedonism rather than Jesus, living for self rather than Jesus. Maybe, maybe the church had a reputation for looking after those who needed looking after, and therefore maybe it attracted folk, and yet what... Paul seems to be saying to Timothy is you've got to prioritise because first and foremost you are to look after family members yet it seems perhaps that this person is not actually even part of the family they seem to be living for self they seem to be dead even while they live the church is not an agency whose primary calling is to care for the aged although that may be the outworking of someone's faith but it seems here in verse 6 that he's saying don't prioritise those people Look after your family first. Again, you get, get similar things in Galatians 6 and 10. There's a third category as well, though. 
So, not to look after those who have got family to look after them, not to look after, it seems, those who may not be Christians, but also then not to look after those who are younger widows, verse 11. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. And again, it sounds a bit kind of, sounds a bit harsh, Paul. Sounds slightly unkind. But I think he's saying again that you've got to prioritise those who are young, those who are able-bodied, those who in a sense can care for themselves. While verse 14, marry and have kids. Manage their homes. Give the enemy no opportunity for slander. These younger widows are to remarry. But it does sound a bit harsh, doesn't it? It does sound slightly strange to our ears. Is Paul being unfair? Is Paul saying, no, you don't show grace to these people? Aren't we called to love everyone, we may say? <sighs> Two things to say. One, as we've already intimated, maybe there were some widows who were abusing the system. Maybe they were deliberately coming in and, and getting what they could and, and actually weren't a part of things. You see that verse 13 perhaps as well. It, these younger widows at least, that they get into the habit of being idle going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies and talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to do. He wants them to, to deprioritise those widows. But also, the reality is, churches have a limited amount of resources. I mean, if you could be flies on the wall in some of our elders' meetings when we're trying to work out when we do the budget, for example, there's only a limited amount of money, or time, or people. And therefore, you have to make hard decisions at times. I think that's probably what's going on. Paul is saying, prioritise those widows who need it most and those who have other options or other avenues and leave them to that. Turn the way past as well. Um, I want you to notice how the church was organised. That is, sometimes we can think of church or we think of some of us think of kind of the early church as being just a big sort of messy, organic family, and it was amazing. Um, and things just develop, and ministries happen, and, and everyone's in each other's lives, in each other's houses, and, and there's just something kind of beautiful and, and organic that's going on here. But it's striking, isn't it, that clearly there's some organisation, because there were people's names on lists of paper. There, there were, for example, verse 9, widows on lists which is one of the reasons we think that Magdalene Road, that membership is a helpful thing. It's not far to get from being a list of widows to actually a list of people, a list of the family. And clearly there's a, there's a tension between organised and organic at times. But it's just worth noting from 1 Timothy 5 and elsewhere that it's not just a sort of organic mess. There's an organised element to the way they were doing church, that they might look after each other well, that they might love each other well, that they might actually be kind and, res- um, and responsible in the way that they are allocating their resources as a church. So, not those three types of widows, not those who have family, not those who probably aren't Christians and not those who are younger, but then who are these widows we ought to be looking after? What marks them out on their CV, Paul? How can we identify them? Have a look at some of the things. Um, verse 5, firstly, the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray 
and to ask God for help. Number one, she looks hopeful. That is, it seems there's a peace and a hope about her future. Which is striking because because no doubt being a widow in in those days, in our days as well, but particularly in those days, could be anxiety-inducing. Where does your income come from? Where does your next meal come from? How are you going to be provided for? How are you going to get through the next season, the next year? How are you going to provide for those dependents you might have within your household? And yet, here is a widow who puts her hope in God and trusts him. Which then links in with prayer. Because of the hope that she has, because of putting her hope in God, and so continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. It's a prayer without ceasing. It's a prayer that knows the reality of their situation, and yet knows the kindness of their Father in Heaven, such that they pray. Their trust and their hope is in their Heavenly Father. And I have to say, I find that challenging. Because I think it's easy to trust in ourselves. I think it's easy to to despair in our circumstances. But the people here who are most hopeful and most trusting, those who need to throw themselves on their Heavenly Father, and they do that. It's striking that in the West we have all the comfort that we have. And the plenty that we have. And yet, does that mean that we're not particularly hopeful? And indeed, not particularly prayerful? Does it mean that we don't look ahead with hope? We we don't need to in one sense because we're so comfortable and so our prayer lines are often very anemic and shallow. It's striking, isn't it? These widows put us to shame. They put their hope in God and they come to him and they pray to him. Maybe in one sense we need to be a people who, who long that the Lord would show us our need. Who would humble us even. That our prayer lives might flourish. That we might see how little we are, how helpless we are as they put our hope in him and pray to him. A few lines of application as we think about drawing to a close. First thing to say is that we must be, as the household of God, we must be a people who are not just concerned for widows, but all faithful family members who are in need. And then there will be some widows and widowers at Morden Road. And it's right that we care for them and look after them. But it's right as well that we be concerned for those who are struggling in different ways as well. Now this was a letter to Timothy. Perhaps it's got particular relevance to those in responsibility, for those in leadership, and perhaps any elders in the room, um, to make sure people are not overlooked, to organise the household well, to deploy care and to help for others, to make sure people aren't overlooked, not falling between the cracks. That's worth saying. Going to give you a glimpse into our elders' meetings. We do pray for people. Um, each time we meet, we will have a kind of care list where we will pray for folk who are in need at the time. And um, we do at times sort practical help as well. That in our budget line each year, there is a, a line for people who are in financial need, practical financial need, and at times that will be deployed if, as and when it's needed. 
But it's striking as well. One of the things I have to say at Maudlin Road is that I think this is something that we are quite good at. I, I don't mean we as leadership, but actually we as church family, we as a household are quite good at. Often I, I hear bad news and I ring somebody up or I text them and see if there's anything we can do as a church to help and it turns out we already are. It turns out somebody else has already jumped in. Um, often it's the mum's Bible study to be honest with you Um, but it's a great thing to see actually as a church family we are good at caring for those who are in need um, whether short or longer term need but it's something that we need to be um, I think something that sets us apart as a church and therefore something that we need to be uh, increasing in um, crashing on with um, trusting the Lord in and thankful to God that we can be in that kind of a family so number one is just the, the, the very practical idea of making sure that we do continue to care for people. Um, I wonder as well if this has application for the wider body of Christ. Um, I'm not going to take this too far because I think it's easy to, to make us feel unhelpfully guilty in this. But I wonder if there is an application here for the wider body of Christ. There's a sense in which um, we as a household, a local household, are part of a wider household of God's family and therefore there will be people around the world who are persecuted and God's global family who are being killed for their faith who are in need you wonder how can we practically be helping those members of our wider family that need our help again it's worth saying I'm encouraged that I think as a routine now on Sunday mornings we will be praying for the persecuted church and you may have noticed that coming up in the last few um, weeks that's something we hope to do every week or most weeks trying to make sure we keep abreast of where brothers and sisters elsewhere are, where their need is, how we can be praying for them, and indeed maybe how we can be serving and helping and loving them. Maybe that's a good conversation for us to be having as a church. How can we be in a place like Oxford where we are relatively wealthy and relatively well-off? How can we be loving brothers and sisters globally um, who are far more in need than we are? Third thing to say, just as we draw to a close, that is this. Why do we do this? Why is our household to look like this? Why do we care for the needy? I take it we ought to because they're made in God's image. I take it because they are part of our family. I think it's because we share the same Heavenly Father. But I wonder if it's actually because fundamentally we are a people who have been shown grace. We were a people who were helpless and in need. Who were marginalised, who were, who were unable to help ourselves. And so we're a people who know what it means to be reliant upon him. We're a people who have been shown grace. We've received his kindness. <coughs> And say, so because we have received his kindness, so we are to show his kindness to those who need it. And in a world that often seeks to do away with those who are needy, we ship them off somewhere or we try and hide them away and don't think about them. Actually, isn't it striking that the church is to be completely countercultural? That we are to be a community, we are to be a household where people are loved who are in need. Because? Because we have been shown love and grace. Let me pray for us and then we shall respond.
But we do thank you for that truth we've just ended on, that you are a God who shows grace to people like us. Lord, we, we confess our, our need of you. We were a people unable to, to help ourselves. We were a people who were helpless and in need. And so reliant upon you to, to receive kindness and grace from you. We pray that that reality would shape us as a household. As a people who have been shown grace, might we be those who show grace to others. Help us to, to treat older men and older women and younger men and younger women as we ought. As family members. With absolute purity. And we pray that we might be a, a people, a household, who look after those who are in need. And we do that well. Well, thank you for Paul's charging of Timothy in Ephesus here. Thank you for a glimpse into something of what's going on in the church. But, Lord, we have widows among us and others. But might you show us, please, as a people, how we can love each other well. Help us to be discerning. Help us to prioritise and to, to make the hard decisions w- when we need to. But might we be generous and gracious as you have been with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.